Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian Dr. Heather Ann Thompson. Dr. Thompson presently teaches at the University of Michigan, but has worked at American and British Collegiate Academe since 1997. Last January, Dr. Thompson helped co-found The History Studio with locations in New York, Detroit, and Los Angeles. The History Studio helps authors, producers, and documentarians to make their projects a reality and have a greater impact in the public realm. In 2016, Dr. Thompson published her first book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy, which achieved a critical acclaim from American and international literary publications. It is a brilliant account of the Attica Prison Uprising, and it earned her the Pulitzer Prize and Bancroft Prize, along with numerous awards from esteemed legal and literary associations and societies. Heather, what led you to write about the Attica Prison Uprising? Well, I'm a historian of civil rights and of urban history, and I was always very interested in thinking about what were the various locations in U.S. post-war history where there were important civil rights struggles. And I'd always heard about the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971, but had not really read any accounts of it. And so I had actually written a previous book on a civil rights movement in Detroit in the 1970s and was really thinking about what to do my next book on and thought I would do it on Attica. But I hadn't really uh, realized what a journey that would be. I didn't really understand that no one had written about that civil rights protest, which was in a prison, uh, and it was because those records were really off limits, and that was because there was a real cover-up that had taken place after that protest. Uh, it was a really grisly account that uh, really no one wanted this to be told, and so it was a journey to tell that story that I really had not uh, had really not accounted for when I when I embarked on it. <laughs> How many years did it take you to write this book? Well, I think from start to finish, it was at least 13, and, um, and that was in part because the research journey was so arduous. Normally, when we, when we do books as historians, we just, you know, we go to archives and we dig into collections that have already been preserved for us by archivists around the country, and in this case, uh, so many of the records were just not there, and that was because they were really held uh, off limits by the state of New York, and many of them still are not uh, available for the public. So it was really a journey of trying to figure out at the before it took a really long time. Did you have to like file suit in court to gain access to the records? Uh, did uh, anything of that nature, uh, uh, Heather? Well, it was a it was a combination of things. I had to file freedom of information requests. Um, I had to track down who the survivors were of the uh, of the prison uprising, the the guards, the prisoners, the police officers that retook the prison, the lawyers, the judges. Um, it was just really a, a, an inquiry to figure out who had. Uh, who has the records, who had copies of the records, who had whatever the state of New York had, uh, the originals, the copies, and just kind of 
you know, follow the, the paper trail. And I had a lot of uh, really generous people who wanted the story told no matter what, and and eventually was able to tell it that way. And then also some really lucky breaks. Um, you know, I happened upon records that I, you know, was quite certain that state officials did not know were were out there. And and through that was able to piece together the story, uh, really uh, I think a quite extraordinary human rights uh, story that um, you know I was uh, very glad to be able to recover. Are any of the prisoners who took part in the uprising still being held at Attica, Heather? Um, no, not the. To my knowledge, almost everybody who was at Attica at that time has been released or um, has since passed away. Uh, but, uh, you know, this was now, uh, this will be the 50th anniversary of Attica in 2021. So it is now a long time ago, but there are survivors and the surviving guards who are there, surviving prisoners, and they all still, you know, have experienced so much trauma of that moment. Not so much the trauma of the experience of having stood together for greater human rights in that institution, but really the trauma of the retaking of that uh, of that institution at the hands of the state police. And, and so that was part of the journey of telling the story, was really what had happened back in 1971. And as the 50th anniversary approaches next year, I think everyone will be hearing a lot more about that story again. What caused the Attica prison uprising? Well, you know, much, unfortunately, much uh, of the same reasons why we hear so much about prisons today. Um, really terrible conditions on the inside. Um, when juries sentence people to prison today for any number of reasons of wrongdoing, uh, they sentence them to time away. They do not sentence them to a lack of food or, or you know, lack of heat or medical care or basic human rights. and. The same was true in the 70s. The conditions were abominable and uh, human rights violations galore. And so what touched it off was basic, uh, you know, concern for human rights and prisoners coming together to ask for basic remedy. And that's what touched it off. And um, I think there was great measures taken to try to remedy that. But unfortunately, it all disintegrated when the state of New York retook the prison by force. And that led to uh, the killing of both prisoners and guards alike uh, at the hands of state troopers, which then uh, has really led to a, a decades-long story of trying to tell what exactly had happened. So are you saying that in the aftermath of the retaking of Attica and the suppression of the uprising, there was re no real uh, reforms in the in the in like the New York State prison system or even the American prison systems? Or is that, is that what you're saying, Heather? Yeah, well, one of, the, one of the greatest ironies was that in the immediate aftermath, there were some really important reforms to things like visitation and health care. And, and the real, there were some inroads made, but unfortunately, and in no small part, because the history was not correctly told about what had happened at Attica, People saw a lot of the prison uprisings of the 60s and 70s as irrational and as prisoners demanding too much. They really didn't understand what was going on, and there was a real backlash to them. 
And unfortunately, part of that backlash was this war, you know, war on crime, tough on crime moment, this uh, war on drugs, tough on crime moment that we've been living with for the last 50 years. And that moment led to much worse prison conditions. And over time, we came to have a country with more people locked up than any other country on the globe and worse prison conditions than we actually had in the 1970s, believe it or not. So the anniversary of Attica is going to be a real time for us to reflect on that, unfortunately. When you were doing your research, what was the most shocking thing you discovered while researching your book? I think, honestly, the the amount of inhumanity uh, of, of what went on on the day of the retaking of that prison. Um, you know, the prisoners inside were negotiating with the state of New York for basic human rights. And on the day of the retaking, September 13, 1971, uh, troopers stormed the prison with guns blazing, 128 men were shot uh, some six and seven times, uh, prisoners and guards alike, and then they were tortured for days and days, and no one knew what was happening behind those walls, and when I got to see those documents, it was really, really hard to just process what I was reading and learning about, and, and then I think what was even harder than that was to see how many people with authority and power knew what was going on and did absolutely nothing. So for me, as a as a someone who's reading it and trying to write it and recount it for the public, I think that was probably the hardest thing. Were there any heroes, if any at all, at Attica during the uprising? Any quote unquote heroic figures during the crisis? Absolutely. I mean, one of the other things about, you know, being a storyteller is that for every villain, you know, there's always these incredibly humane, extraordinary figures that come out of nowhere that you least expect. And Attica was no different. There was the, you know, there were the, the prisoners who surrounded guards who had been taken hostages to make sure that they weren't harmed. There were, there were the, you know, the guards who in front of the media and said, you know, the prisoners des desperately need some of these rooms. There were the, the media figures who went inside the prison who were terrified. They didn't know what awaited them, but did, did their jobs to make sure that the story was reported correctly. You know, there was the coroner, Judge uh, John Edlin, who uh, bucked the entire system and reported that the prisoners had been shot. Uh, and the, the guards had been shot when the state of New York was saying that their throats had been cut by, you know, barbaric prisoners. So there was all kinds of these amazing figures in the story who risked everything. There was a prosecutor who blew the whistle on the state of New York to tell exactly what was going on. So there are definitely heroes and heroines in this story, too. And, and that, of course, is that's the crux of American history. It's, it's always complicated. Who, in your opinion, were the biggest villains of all of the Attica uprising, in your opinion? You know, I have to say, some people would, would perhaps want me to say it was, the, it was the state troopers who went in there with the guns blazing, who actually carried out some of the worst torture on that day in D-Yard in inside of the prison uh, against the, 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 the prisoners who, who didn't have firearms. But... But honestly, to me, it was the people who sat in their, their offices 
who knew what was going on and did nothing. Uh, it was the people with the most power who denied what had happened. It was the people who could have uh, remedied the harm and did nothing. Um, you know, remember that even the hostages, the guards, ended up being shot as well and died. And, um, and they were swindled by their own employers. And, and all of that harm was done by people who had power to do better. So to me, at the end of the day, those were the biggest villains. Was the violent end of the uprising inevitable? And the reason why I ask this, Heather, is because uh, years ago, I read a Kerry Reich bio of Nel Governor Rel Nelson Rockefeller. And in that bio, he, uh, Reich uh, quotes Rockefeller saying he had, he had a regret, a regret about Attica is that he didn't, quote unquote, crush the rebellion sooner. Uh, was, so was it inevitable there was going to come to this, there was going to be a violent end to this? Was it inevitable? It's such a great question because there's really, it, it, there's two answers. I think it, it, on the one hand, yes, it was inevitable, but only because uh, it was inevitable because Rockefeller uh, was unwilling uh, to concede that ground that uh, human rights ground to prisoners. He was so determined to show that he was tough on crime. His party had become much more conservative. Nixon had won the White House. He wanted the White House so desperately for himself. And Attica was his kind of opportunity to show that he was not as liberal as the liberal Republican that he had been kind of assumed to be all those years prior. And so he was not going to give in at Attica. That was pretty clear in retrospect. But was it inevitable in some global sense or some ethical sense? No, of course it wasn't. Of course there could have been a, a peaceful resolution. One, incidentally, that would have saved not just prisoners' lives, but would have saved the lives of his own employees who went to work every single day uh, to put food on the table of their families in small towns in upstate New York. So. It was inevitable, but only because of his own political ambition. Was was Rockefeller getting any external pressure from the Nixon administration about this when it was going on? Well, so that's one of the one of the interesting things for all of the years that I put into that book and all of the uh, what I feel very uh, strongly about the, the 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 leads I was able to track down in terms of the documents I found and all of the kind of stones that, that were unturned. The one thing that I feel that there is more work to be done on is exactly what the connections were to the federal government. I was able to find the correspondence, the, the, the conversations between Nixon and Rockefeller that took place on the day of the retaking. And they indicate pretty clearly to me that there had been uh, not just affirmation coming from the White House, but, but uh, certainly um, that there had been ongoing conversations. But we need to know more about that. And, um, and those files also, of course, are very difficult to get. I will tell you, though, that I had uh, found the FBI correspondence that made clear that from the moment that the Attica uprising began, that teletypes were going from the local agencies all the way up to the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the President, the Vice President, the Attorney General, all the way up to the highest levels of the White House. And we need to remember that Attica is a tiny town in a state prison in upstate New York. 
And so that indicates to me that this was very, very much on the minds of the White House, and therefore they were very much involved from the now, were there any people in the Rockefeller administration, you know, at the state level who were offering a viable alternatives to, quell, uh, to solving the uprising as opposed to violence? Did, did you identify any people who were offering viable alternatives? Well, there were there were certainly at this at the state level. I mean, there was there were a lot of figures. For example, state uh, New York State Senator John Dunn, who was a Republican, who was pushing internally to see these negotiations out. And there were certainly people in the party at the state level who definitely saw that there was a need for prison reform and that there was a there was a way to do this differently. And so, I, I, again, I, I feel that there was the, the inevitability of the storming of the prison was coming from a much higher level from Rockefeller on up. And the fact that it was covered up there thereafter it was pretty clear this was coming from higher up. The moment that that retaking happened, uh, my book indicated that there were then a series of secret meetings that took place in Rockefeller's pool house, mm. uh, where the uh, essentially the story was then gotten straight. And who was at that meeting but the head of the state police who had essentially carried out the retaking, the, you know, the attorney general, the, you know, the state attorney general, the head of the Attica investigation, you know, Rockefeller's men. And, and you know, this is so far above the pay grade of the actual troopers that were sent in there. And the fact that it was the troopers that went in at all, as opposed to the National Guard, just indicates that this was, uh, you know, this was well above the pay grade of the people who actually carried out the acts of violence uh, on that day. Heather, please tell us about your background. Where were you born and raised? So I actually am um, from Detroit, and uh, I grew up in the inner city of Detroit, and uh, uh, went to the University of Michigan, uh, and uh, then decided I wanted to be a historian, and went to grad school, and uh, really saw myself as a as I said, a historian of cities and a historian of civil rights and kind of came to this as someone who wants to tell these stories of how did we end up where we've ended up in terms of race and and politics in America. And, and you open talking about, you know, the, the history studio and, and, I, and it's, it's kind of related to that as well because I think these stories matter, you know, telling history in such a way that that, you know, we see it in film and we see it, you know, on TV. I think making history is accessible is something that's always been really important to me. Please expand. Please tell our listeners, tell us more about the History Studio. What are its objectives and where can people contact the History Studio with proposals and ideas? What? Tell, please tell us about it. Yeah, so so well, we we all know for for uh, Netflix uh, bingers and watch television as much as we all have been doing certainly during the pandemic, um, we are all really really interested in great content and and for historians like myself and scholars who are con who are constantly uh, thinking about uh, good content and and a lot of us have already been doing consulting on shows and we just kind of came together those of us who are already doing that work my own book on attica is going to be a film uh for sony it's also going to be a documentary so uh, some of us in the in the profession were already doing this work in the industry and we came together 
and we created this company in two studio because we decided we were going to actually do this more systematically and we formed the company uh, a year ago and so even though we all have our day jobs we're all professors we all write our own books and we all teach because that's our first love we also consult and we work on television series and documentaries and our goal is to ensure that they are authentic and that they are representative of you know all kinds of storytellers that they that they uh, you know really are culturally sensitive that they don't stereotype uh, stories or, uh, or you know uh, that they're authentic essentially and um, and so the history studio is at you know historystudio.com and and it's a it's a really interesting way I think of making what we do as scholars and what uh, filmmakers do as entertainers uh, connect in in really interesting ways. Yeah, Heather, whenever I interview an author, I always have this standard question that I always love to ask because it's always interesting how they respond to it. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of all of your favorite authors, did any specifically give you the inspiration to become a writer in your own right or perhaps influenced your own writing style? Who were your favorite authors when you were growing up? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that's such a funny question because I've been asked as a, as a grown-up who my favorite who my favorite authors are. But I, it's so funny. I think... You know, I mean, of course, as a as a as a kid, I always actually as a kid and as a grown up, I have always loved mysteries. I've always loved mystery writers, and so I hadn't thought about it until you asked. But I I guess that's also why I'm not just a historian, but I always am pulled and drawn towards history stories where there's a there's a mystery at its core you know why did something happen and who was responsible for it and and how what was really going on at its core uh and so my next book is like that as well my next book is on the move bombing in philadelphia in 1985 and like attica you know what pulls me to it is what happened there and who was responsible for it and there's all these you know, this thing, things are covered up, and why was there a bomb drop, and who dropped it, and, you know, how are all these people killed, and why don't we know more about it? And, and I think it all goes back to Nancy Drew as a, as a, as a little girl, and, then, and, you know, and in my teens, reading all these hard-boiled female detectives, and, <laughs> and, then, and then becoming a scholar and, and putting some real research behind it, I guess. It's interesting you're talking about moving Philadelphia because hey, I I grew up there. I mean, I was I, I live there now, and you know I I grew up watching that. Now you're talking about the move bombing of 1985. There were previous incidents during the Rizzo administration when they raided That's the right. thing. Will you be discussing that as well? The previous raids and all that. Will that Absolutely. be also? Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. When I can Philly? I used to teach at Temple, so I. I lived it. I lived in Philly, and I lived in West Philly, and it was really clear to me there how present that event still is in Philadelphia. And again, like Attica, it's one of these really important events that shapes the city today, even though it happened so long ago. Just like Attica happened 50 years ago, but clearly it shapes 
criminal justice in prisons today. And so uh, I wanted to do a book on that. And you have to really know a city, I think, to do a book on it. And I felt like having lived there so long, I wanted to to dig into it. And so, yeah, it's going to be starting actually in Philly in 64 and working forward. It's going to be about the standoff in 78. It's going to be about 85. But to really do it, it means digging into everything. It's, you know, it's the governor's papers. It's Rizzo's papers. It's the, it's the feds. What did they know? And, and why was the FBI giving the bomb to, to the police? And, you know, it's all the whodunits, you know? When can we expect the release of this book? <laughs> well, let's hope it's not 13 years like Attica. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I, I don't think I've got that kind of patience, but, but you know, knowing me, um, it's going to be a while because the thing about good storytelling is you can't cut those corners because, at least to me, the best stories are ones where you really do have to sit in everybody's shoes at some point in that story. You, you, you know, you have to, you have to at least understand or try to understand uh, what everybody thinks they're doing at every moment. And so in Attica, at one minute you were in Rockefeller's office, the next minute you were in DR, the next minute you were in, you know, the White House, the next minute you were in, uh, you know, uh, the house of a guard. And I, I want to try to capture that same thing for move. And that takes some time, you know, yeah. you have to, you have to really do a lot of digging to do that. So it'll be a while, but I'm, but I'm going to try to do, do it well. Last question, as we recall, as we recall the socio-political and racial tensions of this year, 2020, and even before that, do you feel right now that history is repeating itself, that the conditions that sparked Attica is leading this country, America, to the precipice of a potential civil war or a race war or a combination of the two at this present time? Do you get that feeling or a sense? Well, you know, I would, I would, be, I would be dishonest if I, if I did not admit to being worried at times about the way that people are, I, I would say, almost flip about the risk of that. You know, uh, we, we don't take the past seriously enough. We don't learn enough about how easily we fall into hatred or how easily it how easy it is to uh, fall away from democratic norms or how easy it is to fuel racial hatred or how easy it is to give up on things like voting rights or how easy it is to abandon principles like you know Miranda rights or human rights and and I, I, it breaks my heart that we take history for granted and we actually know so little history. And, and so, yeah, I do worry about that. And, I, and believe it or not, it does come full circle back to why I am a historian and why I do the books I do and even to History Studio and why I think it's important to link history to entertainment and to movies and to films and television shows because most people get their history from popular media and we need to have history we need to it, it matters truth matters history matters it's not about opinion it actually matters what happened it matters what happened at attica 
You know, okay. it matters what happened at, with Move. It matters what happens. And so, yeah, I do worry. Heather, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show. And uh, hopefully, you know, when your next book on Move comes out, I want you on my show again. Really, uh, please let me know because I'll, I want I'll, I, I want to interview about it in the worst possible way. Okay. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. Take care and please be safe. Okay. You as well. You take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing artist Paul Bouchard. Thank you and good night.